Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around these streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of those stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drews and this is Macabre London. The London Underground Network runs for miles, 249 of them to be exact, under the city's streets, rivers and houses. The tube is broken up into 11 lines, serving 270 stations, with over 4.8 million journeys being made upon it every day. An advanced rapid transportation system, it first opened in London in 1863, using steam trains, which eventually gave way to the modern electric ones. With many years of history planted beneath London's surface, it was only going to be a matter of time before the excavation of the modern tube brings a few spirits to light. But since the inception of the tube in Victorian times and its subsequent success in providing fast, affordable transport across the city, it's also helped to add some gruesome stories to London's history. This time on Macabre London, we're looking into trains, pain and underground squeals, the Northern Line edition.
This train terminates here. All change, please. Please ensure you have all your belongings with you when you leave the train. Thank you for traveling on the Northern Line. The Northern Line is a deep-level tube line covering 50 stations on two split lines, each serving a separate set of stations, making it unique among the other tube lines of London. If you've ever lived or travelled in London, you'll be aware that it was one of the most confusing lines on the network to navigate. Depending on which branch of the line you take, the Black Route runs from High Barnet or Edgware to Morden. The line passes through all of the open stations on the line, but if you look hard enough through the pitch gleam of the fast-moving darkness, you may just be able to spot a time capsule in the form of a closed station. The Northern Line has four that were closed between the 1900s and 1920s, remaining perfectly preserved away from the prying eyes and damaging footsteps of London's everyday commuters. The line runs through the heart of the city, right under the financial district, serving its purpose every day by ferrying the workers of London through the narrow rat runs to their destinations. The Northern Line is steeped in history. It started life as a very short line, serving only a handful of stations. But as demand grew, the line extended numerous times to allow for an increase in passenger numbers and to allow more Londoners to reach their destinations with relative ease. Even now, the line is still being added to, with work starting in February 2017 to extend the line towards the instantly recognisable Battersea Power Station, an area that's currently undergoing a huge urbanisation project. The Northern Line has changed shape over the years and swapped parts of its tracks to allow better services to evolve. It was on one of these now-swapped lines that London's worst ever tube crash was to happen. The Moorgate Terminus, now part of the little-known Northern City Line, was originally the end of the line for Northern Line trains. The Moorgate Terminus, as it was in 1975, stopped rather abruptly with a black wall painted just after the end of the platform, where trains would wait before returning back in the opposite direction on the short four-stop journey to Drayton Park. On the morning of February the 28th, 1975, driver Leslie Newson arrived at work, ready to start his shift driving the train along the short line for the day. He complained of feeling cold as it was a chilly morning. His train guard thought he'd warm him up by fetching him a cup of tea, which Leslie gladly accepted, and he settled into the cab of the train to get going for the day. Leslie was familiar with the short stretch of line, but was a relatively new driver, having only been a train operator for just over a year at that time, but he was enthusiastic about train driving and was said to have really enjoyed his job. Leslie waited for his passengers to board Drayton Park for the 8.38 service, and leaving one minute later, they headed on their way. The train whisked through and stopped at its scheduled stops along the way, and the usual disembarking and boarding of passengers continued as it had every morning for many years. The train pulled into its stop at Old Street with no issues, and it began its fatal last 60-second journey onward toward the Moorgate Terminal. Passengers on board the train, along with eyewitnesses, stood on the platform, said the train seemed to have accelerated much beyond its usual slow platform approach speed, and smashed in a deafening crash into the wall just beyond the end of the platform, filling the station with thick black dust. In the minutes that followed, the emergency services were summoned to the scene, arrived at speed and started to assess the situation. The tube train was six carriages long, which when pulling into the platform normally would have run the whole length of the platform, 
but when the emergency services arrived at the scene, they could only see three carriages along the length of the platform, meaning that the other three carriages had been crushed into the tiny amount of tunnel left at the overhang at the end of the platform. The fire brigade, doctors and nurses worked to remove as many survivors as they could from the carriages that were still accessible and relatively unscathed. The passengers travelling in the last three carriages towards the back of the train were relatively injury-free, and most managed to walk away from the accident sustaining only cuts, scrapes or mild impact injuries such as whiplash. The front three carriages, however, were a different story. The force of the crash had crushed the first three carriages into a V-shape which reached up to the ceiling, reducing the carriages to a third of their original size and trapping the passengers inside. The emergency services began work on unfurling the twisted metal of the carriages and what they found inside was beyond anything they'd ever seen before. The force of the crash had caused the carriages to reduce so drastically in size that many of the passengers died instantly from the initial impact. However, this caused the living to be intertwined with the dead. One firefighter called it a mess of limbs and metal. The work began to extract the survivors, but as the carriages were so badly crushed, the rescue teams had to work systematically from the back to the front of the carriages. The carriages had pockets of people trapped into gaps in the wreckage, meaning they could only be cut free. Many of the dead had been impaled by metal, pushed through windows, or crushed under the weight of other passengers. As the workers tried to remove survivors, time was running out. The air in the station was incredibly hot and acrid, Suffocation was a real risk for those trapped inside, and for one pocket of people, the emergency services were too late. As a triangle was cut into the wreckage to free the people who could be heard inside, the firemen peeled back the metal to see the people looking up at them, but they had suffocated just before being rescued. As the carnage continued to unfold, the last survivor was taken out of the train 13 hours after the crash. The rest of the wreckage would take a further four days to clear, and only then would the investigations team know the final death toll. 43 bodies were removed from the wreckage, and 74 were reported to be injured from the crash. In the days and weeks that followed the crash, the fire brigade and the London Transport Police investigated the crash to find out what had gone wrong on that morning, and why driver Newson failed to stop at the platform he'd stopped at on many occasions before. The investigation began with an inspection of the train to check the safety measures that were meant to trigger in the event of a platform overrun. The brakes and compressors were all in good working order and should have functioned if used. The driver's controls were also inspected. When the crash happened, the impact had caused them to lock in position, which made life much easier for the investigating officers to try and work out what had happened. The controls were in the forward position and the brake had been ever so slightly applied. The dead man's handle, a safety feature built into the train's controls to prevent a passed-out driver from operating the train, was not triggered. This meant that driver Newson had made no attempt to stop the train at all at the station and was still actively driving the train right up to the moment of impact. Surviving passengers reported being jolted from their seats seconds before the impact. This was as a result of the train entering the station over a point switch which should have been approached at 15 miles per hour but instead was approached at the full speed of 37 miles per hour. However, Newsom was reported by two eyewitnesses at the end of the platform when the train pulled in to be sat bolt upright with a determined look on his face, not having been jolted from his seat like the other passengers had been seconds before, 
It seemed as though Newsom simply didn't apply the brake. Other lines of investigation were taken, including interviewing the staff that had been on duty with driver Newsom that day. Station staff and the assisting train guard all said that Newsom was in a good mood, chatty and talking to them about how he was planning to go and buy his daughter a car after his shift that day. The staff were also questioned about safety checks and procedures that were meant to be carried out on the trains before they left their departing station in the morning before passengers began their journeys. It was found that a number of safety checks had been negated on the day, but also the guard on the train at the time of the impact wasn't in the correct position to operate the emergency brake on the train. Instead, he was searching for a newspaper in one of the carriages at the back of the train, perhaps ultimately leading to him saving himself, but at the expense of other passengers' lives. Newsom was killed instantly from the crash, and his body was the last to be removed from the train, as it was trapped in the wreckage between the wall and the driver controls in the cab. With the heat in the tunnels starting to cause decomposition to his body, plus a wait of four days to remove him from the cab, the post-mortem would prove to be difficult. Newsom's body was tested for signs of neurological issues, such as a stroke or blood clot, but his brain was too decomposed to give a definitive decision on that front. His internal organs were also checked over, and all seemed to be in good working order, including his heart. His bones were assessed, and the fractures in his upper and lower arms concluded that he had been actively using the train controls in the manner they had been found locked after the crash. Leslie's tissues and fluids were also checked for any intoxication. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The report that came back was enough to suggest that Leslie had perhaps taken a drink but was not drunk. His blood alcohol level was 80 milligrams per 100 milliliters of blood, which is over the drink drive limit. However, post-mortem reports often show similar levels of alcohol, even in those who have not had a drink, due to the metabolising of tissues that occurs during decomposition. When questioned, station staff and Leslie's family all said that he wasn't a drinker and would have the occasional half-pint of ale on a weekend. So was the level of alcohol in his system an anomaly, or had he perhaps taken a stiff drink in the cab to gear himself up to commit suicide? The rest of the post-mortem showed that Newsom was in good health, and investigators even commented on finding the £200 in his pocket that was put aside for his daughter's car purchase later in the day. So if Newsom was thinking of committing suicide, why would he have gone to the extent of withdrawing the money for the purchase? Newsom was said to be excited about the birth of his new granddaughter, had planned and booked a holiday to America, and was saving up to buy an expensive new camera to take with him. For a man who was intending on committing suicide, he did have a lot of future plans. 
The papers at the time sensationalised the crash by using alcohol and suicide as the two factors to blame Newsom for the crash, but the truth may have been less exciting. If Newsom wasn't drunk, had no medical emergency, and didn't have the intention of committing suicide, then what exactly did happen to cause the crash? Newsom had driven the line four times that morning on his shift, but had actually only driven the line for 13 shifts by this point. The line itself was shorter than any of the others on the network, and a few factors may have caused Newsom to make the fatal error that would cost him and so many of his passengers their lives. The Moorgate Terminus was unlike any other end-of-the-line stop. The short overshoot tunnel at the end of the platform had a solid brick wall at its end that was painted black. It had a small buffer at the end and a sand pit which was meant to stop trains from reaching the wall. However, the speed at which Newson approached the wall proved to be too much for the small buffer to take. The usual overshoot speed would be very slow, but in this case the buffer, instead of stopping the train, caused it to pivot up towards the tunnel ceiling. This in turn made the carriages concertina violently, leading to the wreckage being extremely severe. The Moorgate terminus relied solely on the driver to stop the train, or for the guard to pull the emergency brake, neither of which happened on the day. Newsom was said to have made a few overshoots at other stations in the weeks leading up to the crash, and when questioned by his guards, put them down to misjudgments on his part. Newsom was used to tube lines and how they operated, but there was one simple error which had been made in the tunnel between Old Street and Moorgate. The light in the tunnel had been left on. Lights on in the tunnel usually signals to a driver that the next station is closed, so perhaps Newsom thought that Moorgate had been closed for the day and just misjudged the amount of stops they had to make, thinking the next tunnel led to the next stop instead of a dead end. The posture Newsom's body was found in would certainly suggest the latter, as his hands were still firmly on the controls and not brought up to protect his face, which is how most people would react to an approaching brick wall. The investigation was inconclusive and laid the blame at Newsom's feet, citing the disaster as a result of driver error, but no one will ever know exactly what happened to cause him to drive his rush hour packed commuter train straight into a brick wall. In the months that followed the crash, safety measures were much improved at the station, and the once black wall was repainted white, a sturdier buffer introduced, and automatic speed trips installed to prevent anyone making the same mistake. But for those that lost their lives, this was too little, too late. The Northern Line during the 1970s was a very busy place to be. Millions of journeys were made every single day by commuters, but some of those commuters would venture into the tube only to commit what is known in the transport industry as a one-under, but better known to you and I as suicide. Platforms on the London Underground now vary from guarded platforms with sliding opening doors to protect commuters to open platforms where travellers are kept an eye upon by station staff, telling them to stay behind the yellow line, which isn't always listened to. All platforms across the network in the 70s were open platforms where the train would run straight into the station and where people wishing to board the train could also access the tracks quite easily by simply stepping off the platform. It was on the Northern Line that an increased suicide rate was being seen by passengers. Along a particular section of the track between Clapham and Tooting, a high number of suicides were seen in a relatively short period. These suicides were unusual, 
family and friends being beside themselves after learning a loved one had decided to do such a thing as they showed no signs of being depressed. Police were mystified as to why so many people should be choosing to kill themselves in southwest London, and why were they using tube trains as their method of doing so. Keenan Kelly, a drifter who made his way to London from Ireland in 1958, was starting to gain a reputation with the police for being a violent and deranged individual. He was suspected and arrested for a variety of different crimes over the 1970s, including robbery and violent attacks on others. Kelly had a habit of being arrested, but then consequently being released due to insufficient evidence against him. In 1983, Kelly was arrested after pushing an elderly man in front of a train at Kensington Station. The victim of the attack escaped with his life after the train driver managed to stop the train before it hit the helpless old man. Witnesses of the attempted murder confirmed that it was definitely Kelly that pushed the man in front of the train, but in court the evidence produced was not substantial enough to convict Kelly, and he was acquitted. In 1984, Kelly was arrested for being drunk and disorderly, and placed in a cell overnight to sober up. He took umbrage at being held in a cell with another vagrant that had been arrested on the same charge as himself, but tried to get some sleep anyway. When Kelly found himself being disturbed by his cellmate's loud snoring, he took off his own socks, tied them together at the ends, and proceeded to garrot them before beating him to death. Kelly was arrested and charged with murder, along with another violent attack which had also resulted in death and sentenced to life imprisonment. All the while Kelly was roaming and drifting London streets around the Northern Line, the suicides along the tracks were continuing to happen. As soon as Kelly was put behind bars, they abruptly ceased. During a police interview, Kelly gloated over how many attacks and murders he had committed against fellow homeless people, but he confessed to something else which concerned the officer even more. Kelly said he had murdered 18 people along the Northern Line, pushing commuters, nighttime revellers and anyone standing too close to the edge of the platform in front of trains. Kelly's interviewing officer at the time has since spoken out about how the case was handled and how police were apparently aware of the murderous Kelly and his obsession with using the tube as his murder weapon, but chose to cover up the case. With the Northern Line being one of the busiest on the London network, mentioning a serial killer on the loose with a penchant for pushing passengers could have caused mass panic and a decline in people heading to their day jobs. To keep the relative calm of the commute, the decision was made to not mention the murders. Kelly was difficult to catch, as he was of no fixed address, committed his crimes sporadically and without the modern use of platform safety methods, such as CCTV, making a conviction would be incredibly difficult. Kelly was never able to be convicted of his confessions, but in 2015, British Transport Police began looking into the case again, after the claims of the interviewing officer were made. 24 families came forward with suspicions that their loved ones' deaths may have actually been murders. No new evidence has been released, and the case is still ongoing. One thing is for sure, the next time you're standing on a packed platform in London, be sure to stand behind the yellow line and mind the gap. Thank <laughs> you.
Along the 36 miles that the Northern Line runs, the line in Kennington is known to be one of the most active. Despite the station itself being fairly busy with passengers during commuting hours, when the evening descends and the station becomes quiet, it takes on quite a different air. At Kennington, trains enter the Kennington Loop, a section of track where trains drive through and around the circular section to turn around to continue their journey on the opposite track. Trains entering the loop can sometimes wait in complete darkness whilst a space becomes free to enter back into the station. Several drivers have reported the same experience while sat in the Kennington Loop. Drivers have heard the sound of interconnecting carriage doors opening and closing as if someone is walking towards the driver's carriage, but upon checking on the carriage cameras, haven't seen anyone in the carriages or the doors opening and closing at all. Two drivers both reported the same story on one evening to the same guard on duty at the station, as they were concerned that someone may be in danger of being stuck in the tunnel after leaving the train thinking they were stuck for the night. When checking CCTV, nothing was found. Incidentally, the drivers hadn't spoken to each other that evening, and yet their stories were identical. With hundreds of years of history hidden below ground, there are many more stories from the tube to discover, and we're not finished with the tunnels and trains just yet. Trains, pains and underground squeals will be back again in the future on Macabre London, where we'll investigate another line on the system. But until then, please... Mind the gap... Coming up next time on Macabre London. A chase across the ocean to catch a murderer and his accomplice on the run from North London. A mistress, a showgirl and body parts hidden under a brick basement. We'll be investigating the case that shocked Edwardian London and which used pioneering technology to track down the infamous Dr Crippen. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Macabre London, then why not let us know on Twitter by tweeting at Macabre London. Every review left helps us to be noticed and for the podcast to be discovered by many others. If you'd like to join us on Facebook, search for Macabre London in the top bar, or you can put Macabre London podcast into Google and we should appear. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Macabre London is hosted on Acast and written, performed and produced by me, Nikki Drews with additional script editing by Neil Murray. Music for each episode can be found in the show's description box on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.